Chris. Thank you for the uh, introduction. And uh, thank you guys for such a warm uh, welcome here. It's my first time at this meeting. And I just want you to know from the moment I got out of the car, Jerry with the umbrella, to, um, to the coffee line and everything, everybody, I really appreciate the warm welcome. Um, I think I've come to the conclusion after being sitting in this room with you guys for a few minutes that I'm in the right spot. <laughs> and uh, if God ever ordains me to head this way in my life, then this would probably make a mighty fine home group for someone like me to be in. Um, I, we pick up on a few things when we're around Alcoholics Anonymous for a while, and, and there's some experience I can tell in this room, um, and there's a wide range of people and all, and this would be a good fit for someone like me in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I just want to congratulate you on, on your group, and I know y'all do a good job of carrying the message. Um, I'm going to get a few things out of the way and then I'll get started. Uh, one of them is my guess is that you've probably had several of my fellow home group members come up and share from time to time. And if you have, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for tonight. And, and that's because if it's like a buffet line, you've had the main dishes from my home group. We've got, a, we've got some really good speakers, really good message carriers in my home group. So they've already had the baked chicken and the lasagna and all that stuff. <laughs> What you got tonight, I'm going to go ahead and apologize ahead of time. You kind of got the corn. You, know? <laughs> you got the rice, and you know, I got some hush puppies and stuff like that. So that's what you're going to have tonight. Um, I do come from a very good home group. Um, if there's anything that, that is reflected tonight that you've seen a positive light, I, I realize I'm not, I'm not really that special. I'm just a product of my environment. So at any rate, so let's get down to some of the business that we're supposed to do, right? My name is Lee Newton, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm not nearly as smart as I look like. I, I know about half of what I act like I know. Um, but I do want to share with you before I get started tonight that one thing that I do know with all my heart, and that is that I'm sober tonight. And I'm sober by the grace of a loving God. And I'm sober because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous does work in our lives one day at a time. And it's been working in my life since September the 27th of 1998. And that's the day that I made it back to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the day I came back to you people. And a little bit more beaten down than I had been before. A little bit more teachable than I'd ever been before in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Rose read it perfectly tonight. I had been around AA before, but I had not let go. Absolutely. I had not let go, absolutely. I was too scared, I think, of what that might really look like, what that might really be to let go, absolutely. As miserable and horrible and all that we're all familiar with, all that as it was, there was still some comfort there if I knew what that was. What I didn't know was what Alcoholics Anonymous really had to offer someone like me, that new way of life that people were talking about. It's scary to think about what that might really be like. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there. Not wanting what you have, but really kind of scared about what, what this thing might really be. So I'm just one of many who will get up behind here and tell you. I'm one of many who will share in your, in your discussion meetings and go to any other group and have a speaker. And I'm just one of many who will say it's beyond my wildest dreams. It's beyond anything that I could have sat down and created on my own, just like they all said. This is the message that I heard when I made it back to Alcoholics Anonymous was that if I was willing to do what we're asked to do, then things would happen in my life that I would not be able to fathom and imagine. So there was an old guy who's passed away now, and he would just beat it into our heads almost every single meeting, almost every single day, because I worked with him some too. And he would talk about a life that he described as second to none. That's how he called the life that he'd been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not better than yours, or better than his, or better than hers, but it was better than second to none. It was, it was better than anything I could have fathomed. And that's what I've been given today. And I know many of you have too. That seems to come as a result of coming out the other end of the steps, doesn't it? When we're walking into this thing in the beginning, that certainly wasn't the case for me. And the case for me in the beginning was, will I be able to stick around these people? And maybe do a little bit of what they're doing, um, try and learn a little bit of what they're talking about. I was beaten into a state of reasonableness that the book refers to. I had no idea what any of this stuff meant. That's just looking back in the rearview mirror, I'm able to see what was happening. And I was beaten into a state of reasonableness, and I was willing to listen for the first time from someone else. Um, we call that what today? Maybe teachable? I don't know. Other things like that? 
I knew everything. I, I know I'm not the only alcoholic. I knew everything there was to know about everything. And, um, and that's what I brought back, you know, except for um, one little thing. Something had broken on the inside. Something had broken on the inside. So um, I want to tell you a little bit of what it was like. I want to tell you kind of what happened. Right? I hope I spend some time discussing just a miracle of what happened, right? And, um, and then share a little bit of what it was like today. And I'm going to do some of today, today, if that's okay. I have a life that I could have never sat down and imagined when I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous at the ripe age of 29 years old. And, um, and today I went and picked up some kids from school. I called it, you get to, when you speak, you get to quit work early, you know? Well, I, I, I declared that I'm quitting work early. So I shut her down about 2.30 today and went and picked up my beautiful twin daughters from kindergarten and, um, and brought them home and got to play with them and do a little coloring and all that kind of stuff for a few minutes before I came up tonight. And, um, and that's a whole other set of challenges that I never thought I would get to experience at a ripe old age of 50, having twin daughters that are five years old and a beautiful 13-year-old girl who came home from soccer practice about the time I was leaving and a wonderful wife that hugged me and kissed me and told me I was dressed suitably to be out in public. <laughs> as she left to go get the dog or something, I don't know. And the good news about all the great things in my life today is they all know where I am, and they all know, even the five-year-olds, generally speaking, have an idea of what daddy's doing tonight. And um, so I don't have to hide. My life used to be hiding. My life used to be lonely, empty, and hiding. That, that was the life that I had, and that's not the life that I had today. I have a mother who contacted me after being out of town for about a month or so. And I wanted to know how I was doing, and, um, and she knows where I am and what I'm doing tonight as well. And that was the mother that I never would show up for, the one that I would promise over the telephone, because I got sober back before we had text. And, and I would promise her with all my heart, I'll be there for your birthday. I promise you. I'll be, I only live five minutes down the road. And I will be there for your birthday, don't you worry. And, um, and she'd go to bed crying, because once again, I hadn't even shown up. And that's the mother today that knows where I am and what I'm doing and is proud of her son, not because of this part, but just proud of her son and, um, and the life that he's been giving her. You talk about a civilian fan of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's my mother. <laughs> she is a fan of Alcoholics Anonymous and what it can do for people because um, she's seen it firsthand. And I know that what had to happen for me when I made it back to Alcoholics Anonymous was that I was one of those that had to see it firsthand too. Um, I just had to see it firsthand. I couldn't grasp the book. I couldn't grasp this beautiful writing that's behind me. I couldn't grasp any of, any of the traditions or any of that. Um, I didn't know anything about legacies and Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea. I had to actually see it. And thank God, thank God I landed in an environment just like this one, I'm sure, where it was visible. It was visibly seen what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, what these steps will actually do for someone. And, um, and that's what happened. Um, I landed in that environment. And um, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave that environment because I didn't know anything about that. And the pain and misery of, that brought me there um, kept me there just long enough. It was that magical moment I'm sure we're all familiar with it where there's just enough more willingness than... Um, than there was to, to, to leave, and so I stuck around. Um, I think about my very first home group. My very first one was the Mayberry Group um, in Mount Airy, North Carolina. As the Mayberry Group, my very first one. And um, I equate them and those guys, now I'm, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm not young. So do you remember the very first infomercial? I mean, you know, the very first one, they had an infomercial, and it was the Ginsu knife. That was the very first one. And you know, when you're knee walking drunk at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's pretty fascinating watching what that knife can do. Um, I need to get one of those. So the only thing that would have ever prompted me to get a knife like that was seeing it cut a center block and then seeing it cut, you know, a tomato. Right? Uh, that's, I'm telling you, this is the speaker you have tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, that was my first home group. I would have never believed that somebody could have been to prison. Somebody could have done this. Somebody could have done X, Y, and Z. 
and then could share on what that step had done in their life and the way that it was today. And I never could have believed that was possible. Um, I'd been around Alcoholics Anonymous before, around the fringes of it. I always equated to like a child who's been waiting all day to get to that swimming pool. It was 110 degrees. And then you finally get there, and everybody's in the pool telling you to jump in, how good the water feels and all. And I would just kind of walk around the edges, too scared and all. Um, and I never really got in. But that first home group got me in. I mean, my first job in that group was washing the ashtrays. Um, that's, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I would, I'd wash the ashtrays. They didn't let me do a whole lot else in that group because they were smarter than I was. They didn't call upon me to share any wisdom. Um, if we were reading, if we were reading, then um, they would, I could read my paragraph or whatever, but they didn't ask me to share on it. Um, I was not asked to speak. I was not asked to do anything except set up the chairs, wash the ashtrays. And I just want you to know how bad it was. I'm going to talk about that in a little while because we do need to qualify an alcohol synonymous, I think. Um, but it was so bad that when I finally, finally landed in that home group and I finally made my beginnings in alcohol synonymous, that I wanted you to know right now that back then I did the best job I could at washing those ashtrays. That's how important it was to me. It wasn't just clean them and throw them over there. I scrubbed each ashtray and made sure that thing was clean, and I wiped it out with a paper towel, and then I sat it over there in the clean stack. It was just, it meant that much to me, um, that first home group. I want to thank Chris for asking me to come speak because um, it gives me a chance to reflect upon my life that I've been given. Um, you know, I get nervous before I'm going to talk a lot of times. It used to be early years of sobriety. It was nervous about what you're going to say and do. Well, I have a lot of confidence in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a lot of confidence in the God of my understanding. And I have a lot of confidence in you guys, right, that we're going to be fine with me speaking for a while. But sometimes what I get fearful about is not being able to do a good job of sharing what Alcoholics Anonymous has really done. That's what I get a little scared about. You want to do a good job for AA when you're speaking, when you're washing ashtrays, and whoever made the coffee tonight, my navigator Brian and I both agreed some of the finest coffee I've had in alcohol And I, I'm, not, I'm not even buttering you up because I don't even know who made it. it. It was a fine cup of coffee tonight. It really was. I appreciate that. I was thinking about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. What it used to be like was before... I don't know if any of y'all ever had to go see the judge. Um, most of us end up getting a chance to go see the judge. But what it used to be like was this. You're trying not to be too hungover, right? You got a little bit of fear, so you're going to get nice and drunk the night before court. But you don't want to be too hungover. And then as the latter stages of our drinking, naturally we've got to drink a little bit in the morning. So you're trying to... Use this thing to compute about how much is adequate enough for you to drink without shooting the mark a little too far before you go to court. Um, that's what it used to be like. I used to have to turn myself in to the jailer on Friday afternoon uh, for weekends of jail. Well, that's another objective, right? You need to get a little bit loose before you're going to spend the weekend in jail, but if you overshoot the mark, they won't take you. And so you don't get credit for the weekend and all. So that's kind of a challenge. Well, I'll tell you what it's like today. What it's like today for me, I have to monitor how much caffeine I'm going to have. <laughs> I was thinking about that tonight, having that great cup of coffee. I had to kind of make sure I had my morning coffee, right? But I don't want to get too wound up and come up here and talk, right? Get all jittery. So that's what's happened. You know, that's what you've done for me. That's just a little bit of perspective on kind of what I brought here to Alcoholics Anonymous and what it's like for me today. I have, to, I have some problems like how much coffee to have before you get up and talk. <clears throat> so I was born and raised in Wilson, North Carolina. I come from a, just a moderate down the road, middle class home. Two good parents, another brother, and um, I was born in 1969. And you know, so a little bit of Jimmy Carter recession where they made us uh, eat liver sometimes for dinner and some of that kind of stuff. but. We were fine. Um, with the, the meals were on the table, and we had a nice, clean home to live in, and both my parents worked. So uh, on paper, I just want you to know up front, I have no legitimate excuse, reason, or anything else to be an alcoholic. I was not beaten at home any more than I ought to have been. <laughs> I was a boy growing up, so I needed some whoopings, but I was not beaten 
in any way, shape, or form. Um, my dad is the kind of person that maybe twice, maybe three times a month, he might have, he might have a beer. Um, he might have two on a special occasion if the ball game's really good or something like that. His nickname in college was Two Drinks. He started feeling it, and that's, that's where he cut himself off. You know, we're a little bit different, aren't we, too? It's just priming the pump, isn't it? So um, I don't, on paper, you know, I don't have any. If I could trace any blame game, which is absolutely silly, I did, I did find out later on my mom carried a little bit of guilt um, because apparently I was a rather fussy little child, and I had an older brother who was still in diapers, too, so occasionally a dip of the pacifier in the wine glass would uh, solve Lee's problem for the day. So I, I'm teasing. I, I certainly don't blame that with any of my reason for being here. Um, <clears throat> I started off, um, like most kids, doing pretty well in life. And then I'm guessing somewhere around the neighborhood of about the fourth grade, give or take, is probably where, not alcoholism, but I would say fear probably started creeping into the corners of my life. I've done really well in school. Seemed to be pretty well-adjusted little kid, happy. I certainly liked attention, you know, all those kinds of things. But um, maybe I started being a little bit fearful. I wasn't quite as big as some of the other boys. Um, maybe being a little bit fearful that uh, maybe what if I started making some bad grades in school It started getting a little harder in the fourth grade, you know, instead of all these easy A's. Well, I didn't have any coping mechanisms. I didn't know what any resentments or any of that fear was like, so I just kind of kept it all in, right? Now, I didn't run go find a drink to deal with that, but as I look back on my life, that's probably where the beginnings, the pre-alcoholism probably started occurring in my life. I had no direct relationship with the God of my understanding. I was brought in a Methodist church just like this in Wilson, North Carolina, where I am sure somewhere about 7th or 8th grade there was a Christmas Eve service and once in a while I might have felt a little tingle. But I was the kid who hid up there in the balcony, waited till my parents weren't paying attention, acted like I had to go to the bathroom, snuck down there to the kitchen where they used to have those little, what are those little six ounce, eight ounce Coke bottles? And I'd go in there and raid the Coca-Colas and find the donuts left over from the, from the adult Sunday school class. And that's what I would do during worship service, you know. Is how, that's, that was my church life, if you will, growing up. I had no idea what was about to happen, but um, I'm 11 years old. And um, my uncle, for some reason, and his, I guess, wife, I'm not really sure, were going to Raleigh to see a movie. And I don't know if my parents were trying to palm me off for the night or whatever. They, they invited me and I went. We pulled up in this old two-door Oldsmobile that was his mother's car, my grandmother's car, and we pulled up to the grocery door in Wilson, North Carolina, had a drive-through, and they got a six-pack of Michelob in the bottle. I'm in the back seat, minding my own business, might have had a lollipop, I don't know. And I, Lee, would you like one? I felt that little tap on my leg, and he'd reach back and tap my leg and offer me a beer. Now, I'd had a few sips, and my, daddy, my granddaddy had a Schlitz sometimes when he was sailing, you know, and if you drink a warm Schlitz on a sailboat in the middle of August, you're not going to become an alcoholic, right? So, I said, sure, why not? And I finally wrestled that paper off that label. And um, when I stop and think about it on occasions like right now, I can still see that little condensation dripping down the side of that bottle. And I got that wrapper off and figured out how to open it up, and I started sipping on it. And somewhere near the bottom of that one, and somewhere near the beginning of the second one, is when I felt that, that magic of alcohol. That one that we're all so familiar with, it doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation. Um, so whatever fears an 11-year-old's got at that point, immediately evaporated. And guess what I went to go see that night in Raleigh, which by the way, we used to call Raleighwood, because that's where all the action was if you live in Wilson. We, came, we went and saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So my life was really changing fast at 11, at 11 years old. But no real consequences. You know, at 11 years old, you don't wreck the car. You don't, you know, break up with your girlfriend or cause any major problems, right? Um, but I do think I had enough sense not to run around school the next day bragging all my friends what had happened. I just kind of kept it to myself. Well, later on, as I got a little bit older... Um, some things start happening. And what I'm going to do is try and just briefly talk about the general progression of alcoholism. I know we're all familiar with the progression of alcoholism. I just want to share how it progressed in my life. So fast forward a little while, and I, I'm starting to look on the calendar that's on the refrigerator. I'm starting to see when my folks are going. My folks were good people, and they would go to a church meeting or a committee meeting or a United Way. There's a little good things in the community. I'd look and see when they're going to be gone. 
and I'd say, ooh, Tuesday night. And I'd hear that garage door down, because I'm upstairs studying, you know. And I'd hear that garage door go down, and as soon as that thing thumped, I'm down. And I'm down in that pantry, and I've got my little Dixie cup, and I'm just mixing stuff out of their liquor bottles. Just a little brown, a little white. I didn't know what, I knew what vodka was, but I didn't know what the rest of it was. My parents, as I told you, are not big drinkers, so nobody's ever going to notice a thing. And I can tell you one thing, at that age of 12, 13 years old, I may have been the only kid in my class, I don't know, who was sneaking drinks on a Tuesday night and sitting upstairs by himself drinking liquor and not telling anybody. These are not that teenage bragging kind of stuff that, that would come later. This is me not telling anybody. I'm already getting a sense of ease and comfort provided from that drink already. So as we move forward, I'm the kid by eighth grade or so who's, who's got a scheme running. And um, if I left $10 folded up there underneath the pine straw at the park where our bus stop was, if I put it up under there underneath the tree before I got on the school bus for eighth grade, I could come off the bus that Friday afternoon, there'd be two pints of Bacardi 151 sitting there waiting for me. And um, you can get real popular real fast if that's your objective, you know, if you've got two pints of Bacardi 151. Nobody knew anything about it. I didn't either. Just 151 sounded better than the rest, right? <laughs> so this is what kind of starts unfolding in my life, and I'll just tell you a quick story of, of that, give you a mental image of how it started. So people would come over and spend the night, and then we'd have to sneak out and we'd go build the campfires down the street, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and sit around and pretend and act like we know what we're doing with our Coca-Cola and Bacardi 151. Somebody's stolen some cigarettes. You've heard the story before, haven't you? And, um, and doing our thing and telling stories and acting like we know what we're doing. And getting way too drunk for children, so to speak. And then um, we'd ride our bikes, you know, so we're going to go high. And I remember one particular night, this guy, um, we determined uh, through our wisdom that he'd had too much to drink to ride that bike home. He was too drunk to ride that bike home. We put him through a series of field sobriety tests. Right there. He'd ride his bike around the carousel five times and you know, stand on one leg, all the stuff. And so he passed all the tests, so we let him ride home with us instead of walking. So there we are, heading off at three, four in the morning, I don't know, back to my house. And um, two or three of us. And so we're in lines, and there was only one left turn to get to my house. And we all navigated it successfully. And he almost did. What happened was, you know, when you're drunk, you're a little slow. Or at least I am. And he was that night. And he had both his hands on that handlebar. And he started making that left turn, and he never come out. You know, he just rode it all the way down. And um, his face impacted the street first. And um, there went a tooth, and there went a lot of skin and different things like that. And apparently, we learned a lot that night. I didn't know much about severe drunkenness and all this stuff, but you learn things on the go, don't you? And um, I learned on the fly that apparently an impact, when you're really, really inebriated, it induces vomiting, too. So he started puking all over the place. So here we we are, you know, teenage, 13-year-old kids in in the neighborhood, and he's scraped up and bleeding, tooth knocked out, and puking all over the place. So you do the best you can. We managed to get him home, get him up steps. And hell, I didn't know what to do with him. I'm coming to find out it's going to be a pattern in my life. I don't know what to do. So you come up with something because, quite frankly, I just wanted it all to go away. And so I got him up the steps, and there was a piece of old carpet where I'd been decorating my bachelor pad in the attic. You know, I had my ping pong table and some posters, and we'll, we'll stop there. But um, <laughs> there was an old piece of carpet left over from my decorating, and, um, and so I, I rolled him up in that. I've seen that in a mob movie before. <laughs> and then I went to bed. And I, another guy that was spending the night, he went to bed too. At any rate, and you know, I don't know how your life was drinking and all, but that problem was solved, right? Um, just float on off into oblivion. And the problem was solved until about 9.30 that next morning when his mom came to pick him up. You know, and that's... Um, and he didn't come back to my house. Um, so I just tell that to say, you know, that that's a little bit indicative of what kind of unfolded for the next years and years and years of drinking. It just got... Um, now, I used to teach sixth grade school, so you may hear a little bit of what they taught me. So it just kept getting worse and worse. You know, from that, from that time on, it got a little worse and a little worse. 
So I was a kid who should have done really well in life. Um, God gave me a, a moderate intelligence, and I told you I came from a good home, you know, and um, I had an opportunity to, to do things in this world. And um, so what happened in short version was I, I should have done pretty well in school. And um, I ended up failing and um, ended up being the kid in my, my class that had to repeat the junior year and everybody else was in the senior class. And, you know, you got to go to school if you're going to pass you to the next grade and stuff. And um, things are just not going well. Um, and um, <clears throat> so I'm in love with a girl. She was actually lived up in Cary. I'd met her at summer camp. And I'm impressing her and winding her and dining her. And uh, I thought about it tonight on the way up. Um, it's, I think it's the last time I've been on Penny Road in 1010. Because back in those days, in the 80s, um, they were kind of unheard of roads. And um, so somewhere off of Penny Road, and I, mean, I think I got on 1010. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But I brought her down to Wilson and showed her off. And... We got a hotel room with, I mean, not just us. I mean, we're partying in a hotel room in high school and PJ and, you know, that whole scene. And, all. and I got to drive her back home by 12 o'clock. And, uh, and I did great with that um, right up until about 1010 Road, give or take. And that's when I felt a strange, odd sensation. And that's the tires that are bouncing along. I've run off the road. And um, I come back on the road too fast and we rolled three times. I was only doing 85 miles an hour. I don't know why we rolled three times. And, um, and thank God, you know, had the seatbelt on. But um, we went down to Rex. And um, I remember the highway patrolman um, looked at me. This was about, I, just so many fortunate things, you know. Uh, this was before they had the portable breathalyzers. I am dating myself, aren't I, a little bit. And, um, and he, way out there, he didn't want to take me all the way downtown to blow. Um, he didn't. I'm bleeding all in his car and just, you know. And, um, he's, and that right by that time, he's trying to decide if he's going to or not. And they pulled my car. The tow truck pulled it across and uh, you know, squashed down flat and everything. He said, I'm going to let that be less than enough. And you know what that is for a budding alcoholic. But um, they took us down to Rex. And I remember her daddy came and got her. And that was the last time I saw her. Um, and he made that pretty clear, too. Now, I've got a 13-year-old, and I understand where he's coming from today. But at any rate, this is kind of the progression that's happened in my life. I should have done well in school. Um, I ended up graduating. I, we might have had a couple hundred people, 175. I don't know what was in my senior class. I probably did about 120. was probably my ranking, give or take. Um, but I want you to know what kind of con artist has been presented to you tonight. Okay? And that, I somehow know that they still voted me most likely to succeed in my class. So um, if they'd only known, I guess who never showed up to a high school reunion later on. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate. So I didn't have any business going off to school. My granddaddy was a sharecropper, and um, he'd worked hard, and uh, he'd left a little bit of money for me to go to college. And um, the story goes along these lines in general terms. I proceeded to take advantage of opportunities that were presented to me, had no real understanding of kind of what, what was behind that. And, um, and I should have raised my hand looking back now and said, I'm way too immature. I'm a budding alcoholic. I don't have any sense or business being anywhere near a college. But instead of voicing some fears and concerns I had about that, I just kind of rode that, rode that ride. And um, I proceeded to get asked to leave three different colleges. Um, so when things aren't working well, there's in between all the DWIs, all the wrecked relationships, all the I'm going to do right this time. You know, a summer school of some good A's, you know, maybe an A and a B, just a promising start. What does the book describe? You know, we build up the hopes and pull it down, you know, pull the structure down through a series of senseless sprees. I didn't know any of what was going on. I'm just working on my first step, right? And um, at any rate, I'm asked to leave. And uh, so I don't know about you, but when stuff starts not working out well, I always need to come up with a new idea or a new plan. So how does this sound? You know, this college stuff doesn't really work. It takes a, you got to put a lot of work in. You don't get results for years down the road, right? I'm more of an immediate results kind of person. This is sounding good now, isn't it? I don't know if this has anything to do with alcoholism. I like the immediate results of alcohol. I like the immediate results of a good AA meeting 
I like the immediate results of a good 12-step call. I like some of those immediate results. But I'm selling a different picture back then, and I'm selling this notion and idea that I need something different. So I taught my family to give me that last little piece of money that was meant for my college education. And this was back before anybody was doing it on TV. I want to take credit for it now. I'm flipping houses. <laughs> now, I love this life. I love this. I don't know anything about it. You know, they're giving me a hammer for Christmas, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know anything about it, but I love the lifestyle. You can do what you want to do when you want to do it, by God. And if that involves a bonfire in the backyard at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday night because you've worked hard, then that's what it involves. And I lived in a house on, on Nash Street. We gutted that thing, and I lived in there. So picture this. Um, now, no wonder the girlfriend didn't stick around. <clears throat> Some plumbing. We had a five-gallon bucket that you flushed the toilet with. Not that you used, that you flushed the toilet with. I had five Rottweilers living in there. A few handguns and uh, a lot of liquor. And um, some tools, you know, cause, and we're tearing out walls and just... Um, so I ought to have gotten a little concerned about my drinking when you wake up the next morning and that wall that you had sheetrocked the week before and stuff like that has a big giant bullseye drawn on it and a bunch of bullet holes that are not close enough to the bullseye. You know, and things like that. This is the kind of life I'm leading. So needless to say, things aren't working out, and I'm going to speed it up a little bit. Um, I found myself in a lot of trouble, and I raised my hand. I said, I got some trouble. I need some help. And, um, and we found a fine facility for me to go to. I had to have to find it. So I went off to a fine facility, had a lot of fancy, fancy uh, people in there, fancy names, and boy, I felt a lot better. I felt a lot better after they feed you, you know, and it just, it was a great experience um, for me. But I was not thoroughly convinced of my alcoholism. I was not thoroughly convinced. And to prove myself right and them wrong, about six weeks later, I, mean, I went to AA meetings afterwards. I knew more than anybody in there because, you know, I'd been to this college, you know, for 28 days. And, um, you know, they would call on me to share things. And, uh, but at any rate, um, this is my time around Alcoholics Anonymous, and, um, and I'd go to meetings, and I wasn't doing anything. Wasn't doing anything. Finally, after a series of um, misfortunes, um, you know, of course, I'm back drinking again and carrying on. The worst thing in the world happened was I went out on a date with a girl, and, and I ordered a beer, and, you know, nothing bad happened. Um, so that told me they were all wrong and how right I was. That's just the short version. I know a lot of us are familiar with that. So fast forward a few months later, and... Um, you know, another career, another relationship, everything's just evaporated. And um, so during this period of time, I finally confessed, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better. So I, I signed up for one of those sponsor things, right? You know, some guy. I've got to come home with a sponsor tonight if I'm going to the meeting. So I did that. And of course, it didn't work out, not because of him, but because I wasn't doing anything. But he did something that I'll never forget. And he did something that I try when I'm able to, not perfectly, to do myself today. When he realized I was a hopeless case at that moment, he didn't stop. He didn't hound me and follow me around. Guess what he did? What the book says to do. He brought the message to my home. I didn't have a wife and children. He brought the message to my folks. And he suggested some things that they might consider doing with regards to me. And then they, he told them something in general terms that I relate to how my sponsor puts it today. Just be patient and keep drinking. And that's what I did. I didn't know what was happening, but um, I did. And, um, and it got really bad, like it does for us. Um, now, one of the things that, uh, that I've discovered, you know, as I think about my past in Alcoholics Anonymous, as I've learned from y'all, and some of the wording in the book is quite fabulous, and I know y'all study it and read it and all, so I didn't come here to like lecture people tonight and stuff like that on AA. But, you know, the phraseology of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Now that's, man, well, you know, once my brain cleared and all, and I learned that line, that really sounds eloquent, right? And almost collegiate, right? And, um, but then when I started breaking those words down and kind of understanding what they really meant, um, and it was pitiful. It wasn't just the people I was around, right? I was pitiful. I was pitiful. What, what happened was I, I became confused because it was incomprehensible that someone like me would end up doing what I was doing. 
this is not going to be a fifth step. First of all, there ain't enough time. Second of all, this is not a fifth step. But it was bad doing what I was doing. And then I learned about the word demoralization. I didn't really know what that meant, but it sure sounded kind of neat and fancy. But demoralization. So I'm not really a linguistic expert, but I know there's a prefix there called D. And it's the same D that goes on the front of things like destroy. Deprive, right? And so, taking away. And what it did, what the progressive illness of alcoholism did for someone like me at this point in time in my life is it started taking away whatever morals had been instilled upon me. Um, slowly. And um, some of the things that I did, I'm not nearly ashamed of. And I promise you one thing, whenever it's appropriate with somebody I'm working with, they know about it. Because I want them to know they're not alone. Um, but um, at any rate, that's, that's what happened. Um, so I'm living on a uh, love seat with an English bulldog and some guy who's doing construction work. And, um, and I just want to paint a picture there at the end. And um, I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm not doing anything except about a, um, most of a fifth of wild turkey every day. And then a lot of other outside issues and, and anything else we could drink to supplement that. I'm earning about 100 bucks a day hanging roof trusses in the middle of the sun, August. Um, scared of heights, but I'm hanging roof trusses and, um, and drinking as hard as I can and carrying on till 3 or 4 in the morning and getting up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning and trying to do it again. I'd lost that career job that I had. Um, I'd, I'd had an incident with some overnight drinking and, and had to leave while well, I just never went back. That career was gone, just like that. Um, but at any rate, um, what's happening to me now is uh, it's 4 o'clock in the morning and on a regular basis I'm starting to hear voices. And so I'm hearing these murmuring voices. Now, i got enough sense not to tell anybody I'm hearing voices because, you know, what happens next. But um, I'm hearing these voices and all. And I can, I mean, every night I'm trying to figure out what they are and what they're saying. And this is just what's happening. And so I come to my own conclusion, you know, in my distorted state, that these voices I'm hearing is everybody standing over my grave. Um, it's, it's my family and all. And what they're saying is, oh, man, what a, what a nice guy. What a lot of opportunity he had. He was such a good kid. And all that. I'm hearing all that, right? Friends, oh, I should have helped him. And all this stuff. I'm hearing all that self-deprecating kind of stuff. And so I'm convinced that's what it is. And I, I really, at this point, don't really feel like on the inside I really had a right to wake up the next day. I wasn't sure if I physically would or not, but I, I just felt like I didn't really have a right to. But nonetheless, the next day would come, and I'd have to make a decision right there and then. I don't know if you ever had to make any decisions like this, but you know, I had two piles of clothes in that guy's living room I'm living in. And um, one pile is maybe I can find something over there, and the other pile is ain't no way. You know, that pile, those stiff socks. I don't know if y'all had any stiff socks, but I had some stiff socks. <clears throat> and the only thing I knew down deep in my heart during this period of time. The only thing that um, being around the outside of AA off and on for that period of time, about a year and a half, the only thing I think that y'all had ingrained on me was um, probably the truth um, that it wasn't going to get any better on its own. Somehow or another, that must have clung through all that um, selfish kind of stuff I brought to AA back then. And so, um, anyway, long, long, uh, Long period of time forward, and, um, and I made a decision. I was given one more opportunity if I wanted to accept it. And I made a decision. I went off to a place. And thank God I landed in the right environment in the right place where they introduced me, a proper introduction, I think, because I was ready for it, to Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in, they handed me a big book. And um, I stayed up there for almost six months. And when I think about that, and I thought about some summer day, and I got a little teary in the shower thinking about it, um, what that man did for me. And, um, and how it's my responsibility as best I can um, when presented the opportunity to, to tell people what he did for me. And that was my first sponsor, um, the one I didn't want. I was put in an environment, my first home group up there was the Mayberry Group, and I'm washing dishes, they let me stay there and work at a treatment center. Um, that's my first job, it was a perfect job. You'd have thought they'd given me a position at IBM. 
went on when they offered me a job washing dishes at, at Hope Valley. But nonetheless, uh, <clears throat> I thought about my first sponsor and what he did for me and the time that he made available for me. But that first home group I was in, this is my perception of it. I talked to about it when, a little bit when I was getting started tonight um, and how a lot of the same um, implications, same examples I saw here tonight when I first came. But um, it seemed to me that everybody in that group had a sponsor. That's the perception that I had. I'm sure out of 30 of them in there, there was four or five that didn't. But the overwhelming majority of that group did. They all talked about, just like the name of your group, the solution. That's what they did on a regular basis. I thought it was rude when they wouldn't let the guy in a net cast and all talk about all his problems and stuff. And they wouldn't let him interrupt the meeting. And we're going to talk to you as long as we need to after the meeting. But here we're going to focus on the answer to our problem and all. And so that was the environment that I was put in. But I want to tell you, my sponsor would take the time. He would leave work and he would come and not just tell me. Um, he would read with me. And then I'll never forget, I just did it last week with a guy. And it makes me remember every time I do it, I never forget him showing me. He showed me how he did his resentment list. He didn't just chart it out for me and tell me to do it. He put one of his down to show me how to do it. And, all. and um, during that whole process, I didn't know what was happening, but things were changing. Ultimately, now I see it a little bit better in the rearview mirror. I was drawn closer to the God I had no understanding of, the one that was introduced to me in Alcoholics Anonymous because I had to borrow everybody else's understanding to get started. Um, but I I was relying upon that to get started, and, um, and it drew me closer to him through some of that step work. And he would make me do all kinds of mean things, you know, like power wash the chairs because they were all ye yellow from smoking. You know, he'd make me pick up cigarette butts out there and all kinds of mean stuff. So if you're, I know everybody in here has been around a long time, so I'm not going to say it, but um, if, if you run across anybody who's new in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't ever tell your sponsor you're bored. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm, I learned that, learned that mistake pretty quickly and um but he was good to me and another thing that i learned from him was um, I mean, he wasn't some widely known usually popular guy in aa or something he's just as anonymous as he could be um, just a quiet humble anonymous man and um he took the time to change my life one day at a time or to help me get pointed in the right direction but he told me some bad news one day and it was this he said lee you remind me of a goldfish this is not going to be good because he used to tell me some all kinds of interesting stories and I got a feeling I was getting ready to hear one of them. He said, you remind me of a goldfish. You know, you go to county fair and if you win the game, you might win a little goldfish. And you get him in and you look at him in that bag. He's all scrawny. He don't have much color to him. You ain't too sure about that goldfish. <clears throat> and so, uh, but you bring him home anyway and you put him in that little bowl in the living room and you feed him and, you know, you go by a few days and you go by a few days and you walk by one day and all of a sudden, you look over there at that goldfish, and holy cow, the fin's growing back, and the colors come out, and all. And man, I'm beaming on the inside now. He's recognizing how, how good I'm doing, right? I'm beaming. And then came the bad news. There was the butt, right? He said, but. He said, just imagine if you took that same goldfish, and you threw him out there in the pond in the backyard. Just imagine what he could do then. And I was coming up on that on this five, six months of sobriety. I had done some good step work with him. And he was telling me it's time to see what maybe God had in store. So long story short, it was none of my doing. None of my doing, I promise you. Um, the, the state of North Carolina has seen fit to permanently revoke my driver's license. My sponsor on that ninth step made me go back to the state of Kentucky, or Commonwealth of Kentucky. And, um, and stand for that DWI that they told me I didn't have to come back for. Why are you going to do that? They're going to take my license. And he went on to explain some things to me. Regardless of the consequences to ourselves, we set these matters straight, you know, and all this stuff. I'm going, what? What does that mean? I didn't get it, right? I didn't get it. But I got this. You know what he did? He broke it down for me. And he said, Lee, you've done really well up to this point. He said, really much better than I thought you were going to do. He said, but I'm not sure if you're going to stay sober if you're not willing to do this. And I understood that. I understood what he meant when he said that. So I went up there and they threw me in jail for the night and I'm sober. And, um, and a few months later they took my driver's license permanently. So, 
You know, we've heard the phraseology of, you know, God doing for us what we would not do for ourselves. And so this is a little bit of that. Um, Left with that, I called him up one day and said, they've taken them permanently. What are we going to do now? He said, oh, he said, I know what you can do. He said, you got two choices. He said, one, you could just go one day at a time without a driver's license. Keep learning and growing like you've been doing and see what God has in store for you and just not have a driver's license. And then came choice number two, right? That's the one I really wanted. Door number two, because, you know, he knew some retired judge. I knew something. (laughs) Something. He said, or you could just get drunk as, hey, ruin your life and everybody's around you all over again and not have a driver's license. And so I was presented with those two clear choices. I just needed a little help with my thinking. And, um, and so I commenced to work on that 11th step, and long story short, um, they allowed me back into a college. And nine months sober, I started my very first day back in school, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, new kid in town, didn't know anybody, scared to death, full of fear, full of fear. Um, we bought, my sponsor took me around, and we bought some 1970s, like came off the set of Three's Company. Furniture. You know, the old orange covered sofa. At any rate, $50 I borrowed from him to get started on my furniture package. And, um, and my nine-month day was the first day of school. And they let me back in. And you talk about a child just full of fear in a new place, a new environment. And so I didn't know what was happening. But what I was trying to do was implement some of what you guys had taught me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was just show up. No matter what, just show up. I was full of fear and didn't really want to, but I showed up. And then probably another critical ingredient for someone like me. Don't know more than the teacher knows. Don't know more than the teacher knows. I don't know. That can be a problem for me today, and it certainly has been a problem in my past. And, um, and then just do what they ask you to do. So if I was supposed to read a chapter, I'd read a chapter, you know. Whatever AA told me to watch the ashtrays, right? Watch the ashtrays. So I tried some of that. And I went to a lot of meetings because if you don't want to do homework, hell, just go to a meeting. I was three, four meetings a day, you know. You can hide in AA too, but that's that's another story. Um, And uh, one day at a time, I wanted to give up many times. But one day at a time, three and a half years later, that's, I mean, I'd only been in college for four or five years before, and I had a half a semester of credit. <laughs> so, <clears throat> three and a half years later, one day at a time, they've got me on a scholarship. They've got me on a full scholarship. My parents alone gave me some money to get started with in school, but they put me on a full scholarship. And, um, and one day at a time, I got to walk across the stage, and um, I always like to think about that. Because I got to make my mama cry for the right reasons. And she'd been crying for the wrong ones for a long time. And I got to make my mama cry for the right reasons. And then when I first started um, trying to share my story a little bit, my sponsor would critique me some. And he would tell me, you left out something really important. And he'd get on me about it. And I said, well, I don't want to talk about that. That's kind of prideful, isn't it? Um, they put some cordage around my neck some yellow cords, and they put some fancy terms on my diploma. It was Latin. Now, I'm from eastern North Carolina, so I had to look it up. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, a loose translation for the honorary um, achievement that I'd occurred. And I had to look it up. So a loose eastern North Carolina translation for the uh, Latin that they put on my diploma is on um, the best of the best. The best of the best. And he said, make sure you tell them that you got that. Because he said, there's going to be somebody sitting in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous who doesn't know, who doesn't know yet that that's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous does for us. It gives us the best of the best. It takes a wreckage of a life, a useless, meaningless life, and one day at a time it does give us a life that really is the best of the best, isn't it? It's the best of the best. So against better judgment, I ended up teaching middle school for a few years, started having kids. They gave me my driver's license back. You know the story ends beautifully, right? Um, All those things that that I never thought possible suddenly became possible. 
And it's just evidence, again, I'm just one of thousands, right? Just one of thousands that you're going to meet on this journey. It's just evidence, again, of what Alcoholics Anonymous will do for us if we, if we do what's asked, right? So I hope in some way that I've been useful or helpful to you, no matter where you are in this journey. That's the only thing I ask God to do, is help me meet somebody wherever they are. I know where I am. I still need help. I know what I do today. I still call my sponsor. I know where my help comes from. I know I have a, an effective relationship with God of my understanding today that was given to me right here in AA. But there might be somebody in this room who's like me from time to time experiences something that um, kind of chews at us a little bit. This is, I call it termites. And, um, and I, I've been able to build a, a nice, firm, solid spiritual foundation in Alcoholics Anonymous. The one that they told me I needed to build. The one that's going to stand the test of time and not fall over every time the wind blew, which is what had been happening. So I call it termites. And one of the termites that I experienced in my life, I know I'm the only one, is fear. That's one of the termites that if I'm not careful, if I'm not exterminating properly. So um, that's just why I'm all in. I'm getting ready to sit down. I just love this paragraph. I just got done reading it on last week with somebody on their fourth step. And, um, and uh, from time to time, I have the capacity to forget an Alcoholics Anonymous, what I need to be doing with it. So it just comes off of 68. You've read it before, and you'll read it again, right? Um, it's just, it says, We never apologize to anyone for depending on our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith and women have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. We ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. So if you've got some tonight, if you get a little bit tomorrow, it's just a friendly reminder for me and anybody else who's listening of what we need to be doing about that. And um, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart how fortunate I am for someone like me to be with people like you tonight. And I really appreciate you having me. Thank you.